No, I just have to find my notes. <laughs> I uh, uh, was told originally that I was going to be doing this in the um, restaurant lobby of the hotel, and so the the context for what I was thinking about uh, to begin with is a little bit different than the context of standing on a grand uh, mountaintop with ancient Roman ruins all around. Uh, but I wanted to start off by saying, um, uh, first, thank you all uh, for the hospitality uh, you've shown to me as uh, not a student, but um, as an alum of uh, CTS. I appreciate that uh, very much. The second thing I wanted to share with you is that I believe that all great stories should be connected back in some way to Star Trek. And, <laughs> and I get this, I mean, well, Susan will understand this, I know, but I, I get this reputation about Star Trek. I love the show. Um, I'm not one of those people who dresses up and goes to the conventions, but I talk about it a lot, and so people bring me dolls and, and posters and, and books, and so I have this great collection in my office of Star Trek things, which makes me look even geekier than I am. But the, the final episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, which was a great incarnation of the program um, was called All Good Things. And in it, uh, Captain Picard, who's this uh, really interesting, dynamic character who's a, a diplomat and an and a amateur archaeologist, um, is traveling back and forth through time. Uh, he's in the present, he's in uh, the past, he's in the future, and he's just bouncing around from one period uh, to the next period. And in the conclusion of the show, all the time periods merge back together and, um, and the universe is saved. And I'll let you uh, watch the episode to see how all that plays up and learn more about the, the story. But what's important to me for, from that episode is in terms of this journey of traveling to Israel-Palestine is the feeling that I've been stuck with about traveling through time periods each day. One moment we're on a mountaintop talking about Abraham, the next moment we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. Each day we're looking off into ruins uh, such as the ones here. We're thinking about the future and wondering about this place that is holy to Jews, to Christians, and to Muslims, and wondering what might become of this place while we stand in the present moment aware of the conflict and the suffering that was illustrated to us again yesterday by the killing of the young man in Bethlehem. As a younger man myself, not that I'm that old, uh, but as a younger man myself, I considered myself to be an optimistic person. I was uh, born right after the great civil rights movement in the United States and knew that nonviolent social change was possible. In the year I turned 19, the Cold War ended, not with a real war, but with people just like us with their own hands tearing down the Berlin Wall. And that same year, we watched Nelson Mandela walk out of prison to become a president of a multiracial democracy, ending years and decades of apartheid. And so optimism, to me, seemed acceptable. But seminary 
cured me of optimism. <laughs> but so did, before seminary, nearly the two decades that I spent working on trying to end homelessness, only to see homelessness and poverty increase. 9-11, Iraq, the collapse of peace talks here in Israel, Palestine. Reality robbed me of optimism. But my faith during all of this time has only increased my hope in bringing about that beloved community that is so dreamed of. Not long before he died, I worked on a project with William Sloan Coffin, the great university chaplain at Yale University who later served at Riverside Church in New York. I first met Bill Coffin when I was 18 years old and I had a, a great conversation with him about entering the ministry. At the time I was a Unitarian and he said, you know, at least be UCC, stand for something. And Unitarians will take offense at that, but he was actually making fun of the UCC, which he was a part of. We were brought back together in 2004 to work on a project uh, to try and bring a progressive faith voice um, to the 2004 elections, uh, particularly around uh, the issue of the Iraq war and how we might end it. At that time, I asked Reverend Coffin about the difference between hope and optimism, and he told me what he had been written in his then-soon-to-be-released book, Credo. He said, hope is a state of mind independent of the state of the world. If your heart's full of hope, you can be persistent when you can't be optimistic. You can keep the faith despite the evidence, knowing that only in doing so has the evidence any chance of changing. So while I'm not optimistic, Bill said, I'm always very hopeful. You hear that part? You can keep the faith despite the evidence, knowing that only in doing so does the evidence have any chance of changing. The evidence of our times right now is harsh. Look out on the streets of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, and you know that. Or look at Portland, Chicago, Charleston, Austin, and Ferguson. The list of cities and countries grows pretty long. Still, I have hope. Not blind optimism, but hope. Hope born of the knowledge of all those who have worked for and created places and moments of peace, who are now part of the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. Hope born out of the protest in Ferguson demanding justice. Hope born out of watching a president of the United States sing Amazing Grace at yet another funeral for victims of a mass shooting and watching as that president, as imperfect as he might be, use whatever authority he has at his disposal to prevent more gun violence. Hope born out of the women praying at the Western Wall. Hope born out of the work done by the Holy Lands Trust. Hope born out of listening to those of you on this trip and your concerns and dreams for peace. 
hope born out of the story of the life and death and life again of Jesus, who came us to teach the ways of peace. Amen. Wow. Used for storage of wine.